Bible, let's turn to Exodus chapter 7 this morning. Exodus 7. You're thinking, I thought we were going to start Advent. Exodus doesn't sound like a good place for Advent. We're, this is actually going to be our last Sunday in the book of Exodus until we come back after the Christmas break. We're going to use uh, the next several weeks to go over a few passages from the book of Matthew. If you're rightly preaching the, the Bible, I'm not saying I always do, I'm just saying we're praying that this is what happens. If you're rightly preaching the Bible, you find Jesus and, and the Advent story even in a place like Exodus. And so it's my prayer today that you will see here even the beauty of this. Now, we finished up chapter 6 with this genealogy of Moses and Aaron, and the point was God chose ordinary men. They were the right ones to intercede for his people, and they didn't believe God in the moment, but God later declares, see, I was right in what I did. I'm really always aware of what I'm doing. Now, before we start the 10 plagues that we'll pick up in January that God's going to bring on Egypt, God offers one last sign. One sign before the judgment of the plagues come. So let's pick up in chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And I'll remind you that this is God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded Aaron. commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask for the ministry and the help of your Holy Spirit so that as we come to your word, we might be granted by you ears to hear what your spirit would say to your people. And we pray, Father, that you would be willing to use a crooked staff like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In my brief 48 years of life, I've been blessed to sit under the the teaching and 
preaching of several wonderful pastors. From the moment that I knew that the Lord was calling me to be a pastor, I really began to want to watch and study the way these men lived their lives. I have lots of personal flaws. I didn't expect that they would have any less. I wasn't looking for perfection, but what I was really looking for is to hear and understand in my late 20s and early 30s the kinds of warnings that 60, 70, 80-year-old men would give to a young pastor. And one of the things that struck me then and still strikes me today is a warning that Alan Carter, my pastor in Birmingham, often spoke of. And he would say it in different ways, but he was making the same point. Different biblical images, but it was always this, beware the hardness of the heart. And so at this point, I've pastored in three different churches, and I know that that particular matter is a, is a matter that transitions from every church I've ever been in. And it may be because in every church, there are human hearts. He would say it something like this. Sometimes he would speak of the deceitfulness of sin, like we read in our confession. Other times he'd mention how easy it is for our hearts to grow cold with age. Or he'd reference his own need for the Spirit of God to move into his cold places of his heart and warm him. He would also speak of the dangers of living out the Christian life as if it was just a series of religious exercises. He'd say, do not let that happen, but but instead move towards Christ and his cross. Beware the hardness of the heart. That's really the teaching of Exodus chapter 7. This is God's way of providing one last sign before Pharaoh reaps the judgment of his heart. When you encounter Pharaoh's heart in this book, it's, it's meant for you and I as believers to say, that's what a hard heart looks like. I want to watch and be careful so that I don't harden my own heart in that way. There's another place where we're told about the hardness of the hearts of God's people. It's called Masa, which means testing, or Mirabah which means quarreling. It's 10 chapters from now, and there God's people test the Lord, and they they harden their hearts towards him. They will not become tender to the God who saved them, which is why Psalm 95 picks up that theme, and Hebrews 3 and 4, which we read earlier, says that same thing. These are constant reminders not to let your heart become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does that look like? You ever grumble? against God? You ever doubt his goodness to you in the circumstances that you face? You ever trample on his grace? I'll sin more that grace may abound. Well, friends, if you belong to Christ, God constantly puts his word and his spirit and his signs right in front of your face. And he does that so that you will not become hardened toward him. These first 13 verses of chapter 7 says, Embrace God's signs that your heart may be tender towards Christ. And so we're going to see in this passage three points. The, the Lord is sovereign, Pharaoh is responsible, and then thirdly, you are called. The first and perhaps most obvious truth in this passage is that the Lord is sovereign. It's impossible to read that and miss it. There's, a, there's really a vast difference, though, isn't there, between the way that you would govern if you were God and the way that God governs in the Bible. And the reason that there is such a difference, that 
why you would do things differently than God is because you and I don't really understand what it means to be sovereign. Apart from God, we have very few examples of, of true sovereignty. So when you and I think of sovereignty, we think of kings who, who use their heavy hand to crush people and get them to do exactly what they want. Whoever opposes them gets crushed. Human beings try to exert power and that is what they think is sovereignty. And they do that because they almost always feel at some level threatened. So the only way to to exude sovereignty in human eyes is to exert force. Now because you and I aren't sovereign in really anything, many of us are prone to feel threatened by opposition. In fact, one of the ways that you might begin to see evidence of the growth of grace in your own heart is that you would be able to interact with people who had differing opinions without feeling that your own identity was threatened. doesn't matter if you're working in a group project, sitting around a table in a class, or sitting at the dinner table with your family at Thanksgiving, or whether you're sitting in a board meeting of respected individuals. When you are finite, as you and I are, it is easy to confuse getting people to do what you want them to do with power, with control. So finite people like us almost never really have a true sense of what sovereignty is when it's spoken of in the Bible, which is why what you think you would do if you were God and what God in fact does as God are totally different things. Sovereignty is not just simply getting weaker beings to do what you tell them to do. That's, in fact, kind of a low-level power. When the Bible tells us that the Lord is sovereign, it means that Yahweh receives his honor and he receives his glory even when individual people do not do what he tells them to do. Why? Because the Lord is far above anyone or anything in power, so much so that he's really not threatened by these tiny little beings who give him opposition. He's the one true sovereign king. And so he feels no threat if Pharaoh says, nope, I'm not going to surrender to you because God hasn't lost control of anything. But more than that, here's where true sovereignty differs from what you and I would expect. True sovereignty means that God is glorified, not simply when everyone does his will, but even when stubborn people oppose his will. That's a kind of sovereignty you and I can hardly comprehend because it is so sovereign that he gets and is exalted in glory even when his enemies oppose him. Here's what I mean. God says, Moses, you and Aaron go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But I want to be really clear on the front end. He will not let my people go. And his little petty opposition of me is only going to become more rigid. And here's what you and I are meant to see. The Lord isn't threatened at all. He knows the opposition beforehand. But more importantly, he reigns so fully over the opposition of men that he intends to receive glory by their opposition. For finite beings like you and me, it's really a sovereignty that we can scarcely understand. Let's think about what that means on a global scale. 
on any given night. You're going to turn on the television, and you're going to become consumed as you watch by the evil that exists in this world. And if your definition of sovereignty is so small that everything in the world must bend to a biblical ethic today, if you only believe that God gets his glory when everybody on the earth in this lifetime obeys him, you're almost always going to be left wondering if God is in control still. Or you're going to be wringing your hands with some low-level murmur and go, well, it looks like you don't know what's going on, Lord. Clearly, you're not winning. I mean, the evil of this world is utterly oppressive. And so to whatever degree you do not know or you forget the sovereignty of God, to that degree, you're going to become consumed by fear and doubt as you watch what's happening in the world. But then let's take it down simply to the national level. You'd be tempted the same way. You look around you in our country and you say, well, every loss of a biblical ethic Every stubbornness of sinful men, every ungodly law or policy, that's going to make you feel as though it's the elected officials who are sovereign instead of God himself. Moses, Pharaoh isn't going to listen to you at all. Now look at the second part of verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You see the point? No one will have a a clear sense of the sovereignty of the Lord until the Lord decides to exude his full power over the wickedness and rescue his people in the end. Now on a personal level, that's, that's exactly what happens in individual salvation. I've mentioned the global, I've mentioned these national implications, but but personal salvation works exactly the same way. The Lord was, in fact, and is, in fact, sovereign over your personal opposition to him. I'm talking about the opposition in which you were born. Your sin nature and then those actual transgressions which proceed from that sin nature. And the only reason that it looks to you today that you made a good decision to follow Christ is because God laid his hand upon you and then he laid his hand upon Jesus. In other words, great acts of judgment were poured out on God's Son. And God's hand then turned and moved you to bring you up out of slavery so that you who once defied him and were an enemy of God came to know what verse 5 says. They're going to know that I'm Yahweh the Lord. That's actually happened to you if you belong to Christ. Three applications. If you belong to Christ, then God's sovereignty is a great comfort personally. It's a great comfort because the Lord reigns victorious over your heart so that you can never run away from this God of sovereign power over your salvation. Number two, if God wants to save someone and he decides to place his hand upon them and to bring them to himself, they could never resist, which is a great comfort. 
because you can pray for anyone. You can share Christ with everyone. And none of them will hinge on your perfection of delivery. But only on the sovereign God who moves the hearts. See, if God wasn't sovereign over personal salvation, then you and I would be prone to deem some people too bad, too far gone. But God reigns over everyone for his purposes. You may not know what God's purposes are in a person's life. But you can keep praying for that person that the Lord might bring them to himself. The third application. And that is for those who reject and hate God. You can see from a passage like this, the Lord still reigns sovereignly over them. It's primarily a a mystery of his grace why he would treat Israel differently from the way he treats Egypt. He chose to show compassion and mercy to one and he chose to place judgment on the other. And so it's not as if Egypt's rebellion weakened God's sovereignty. In fact, it exemplifies his glory. So while he shows grace and mercy to one, he displays righteousness and justice to the other. The question is not, why did he choose to drop justice on the one? The question is really, why did he choose to show love and kindness to anyone? Martin Luther, the great German reformer, studied the book of Exodus and he struggled to understand why God would tell Moses to go and do something that he knew wasn't going to be received. I mean, if the outcome is already certain in God's eyes with Pharaoh, then why should he go? After a lot of time and struggle and prayer over this particular passage, Luther realized this. No preacher is ever guaranteed that God will bring salvation to everyone who hears. But every preacher is assured that God will always bring salvation to the very ones he intends to save. Far from being wasted words, this is comfort. God isn't bound by my definition of sovereignty. And if many people reject Christ in this life, it doesn't mean that God failed to reign. It means that this is a kind of God who can and will receive glory from both mercy and justice. The Lord is sovereign. Embrace God's signs that your heart may be tender towards Christ. Secondly, you notice that Pharaoh is responsible. Now, because you and I are finite, it appears to us that points one and two are in opposition, but they're not in opposition. How is the Lord sovereign and also Pharaoh responsible? I mentioned several weeks back that the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in the book of Exodus is explained in three different ways. Sometimes it's said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, as it says in verse 3 of our text. Other times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the Lord. It says that twice in chapter 8. It says it again in chapter 9. And then on other occasions it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's what it says in verse 13 of the passage that we just read. Three different ways to tell you that all of those are true. Pharaoh's heart is hard because of the deceitfulness of sin. 
And so this sign of the staff, which comes in verses 8 through 13, tells us that the Lord clearly did not intercede to soften this hard-hearted man. In fact, the signs prove the, the third reality that's spoken of in verse 13. Pharaoh's heart is hard and it's proven in this profound sign that can be done in his midst and yet nothing of the sign seems to move him. Pharaoh is responsible for his own actions. That's really the message of verse 8 through 13. Verse 8, Moses, Pharaoh is going to ask you to prove yourself by doing a miracle. And he's going to ask you that because his heart is hard and he doesn't really want to believe. Tell Aaron to throw down his staff. And I'm going to do a sign that I showed you back at the burning bush. The the staff is going to become a snake. And then the Bible says Aaron did precisely what God told him to do. What would a soft heart do when when a, a rod in the hand of a man is thrown down and becomes a snake? Wow. I asked God for a miracle. And he did it. This must be the one true God. That's not what Pharaoh did. Verse 11, he summons the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt, and the Bible says they did the same. And so we are left wondering as readers, aren't we, who really has power? I once heard an Old Testament scholar speak about these court magicians and what they did, and he spoke about it like it was a trick. Apparently, some people say that there's a spot on the back of the head of a cobra that you can press and this snake will become rigid. And apparently from a distance, these modern scholars presume that these snake charmers held the back of the head of the cobra. It stiffened up and then they tossed it and it loosened up and became a snake. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they did the same. By their secret arts. And so the sign of Moses and the sign of the magician is explained as the same. But the source of the sign is clearly different. Moses' sign comes from God. The magician's sign comes from black magic. It comes from a very real but limited power of Satan and the demons themselves. You pull a rabbit out of a hat, it's an optical illusion. It's kind of cute, kind of funny. It's not black magic. It's not a secret art. I remember a man who came to my house as a child, and he did this little trick, and he made me think he was actually removing his thumb from his hand. And my jaw dropped, and I was amazed at this magic That's not what's going on in this chapter. What's going on in Pharaoh's court is that the Lord God has come and he has said, now is the time to believe me and submit to me. And instead of a tender heart, Pharaoh summons his magicians to hijack the message as if to say, you've got tricks and we've got tricks. And one pastor rightly said, these are miraculous, 
but they are powers of demons. I mentioned in an earlier sermon that that Pharaoh's staff is shaped like a serpent. It's shaped like the head of a cobra, and it was adorned with various images of snakes. Now, if I was to ask you, who is the most famous Pharaoh in Egypt that you've ever heard of, probably everybody in the room would say King Tut. And And a little Google search of King Tut will take you to an image Sometimes it's called King Tut's mask, and you recognize that flowing gold mask. And there's a band on his head with a crown, and on the front of the crown, there's a cobra coming off the head of the crown. Why did King Tut wear that? Because to the Egyptians, serpents represent this divine power. They represent authority, and it's on the head of the king. Pharaoh believes that he is God, and his followers believe that he's God. And so when Yahweh, the true God, presents to this man a staff that turns into a snake, God's message is so clear. I'm the one true divine authority. And Pharaoh says, I will not bow my knee. In fact, I'm so certain that I am God that I will summon my own magicians and they will conjure up snakes. It's going to happen at least two more times. That Pharaoh tries to do these things in opposition to God. When God presents a real sign and Pharaoh presents a lesser one. And then in each occasion, God by his divine power consumes or proves that those are lesser signs. He's basically saying, I really am the true power. In this case, Aaron's staff swallows up the other snakes. Oh, Make no mistake, if that happened in your presence, it would be a sight to behold. It it would be a sign that should have moved the king to repentance and faith. It's one final sign before judgment. What did the sign reveal? The God whom Pharaoh refuses to heed is the one true God of power and glory. The God whom Pharaoh refuses to heed has given a sign that says, Pharaoh, my power and my authority will swallow up all of your power, all of your authority, as easily as this serpent swallowed up those. Now look at verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord said. God knows just exactly how prideful and stubborn and rebellious the human heart can be. And he knows that hard hearts don't soften by signs. So the fact that the Lord told Moses beforehand that Pharaoh would not listen, that fact doesn't make God responsible. It makes God sovereign. It makes Pharaoh responsible for his refusal to acknowledge what the sign revealed. Namely, you're not God. Yahweh is And if you do not submit to his reign, there's judgment coming. Ten plagues are coming. It's one single sign before God falls evil upon them, falls on this evil. And all of it, of course, serves to remind us once again that signs alone never soften the human heart. This can't soften the human heart. This can't soften 
the human heart? God can soften the human heart. God does soften the human heart. And if you are here today as a believer in Christ, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, it's only because the Lord has already softened your heart. That's why your approach to God's signs and Pharaoh's approach to God's signs are completely different. For Pharaoh, signs just prove his condition. For you, with a tender heart, signs have the power to compel you and move you towards him. And so, this passage says, embrace God's signs that your heart may be tender toward Christ. The Lord is sovereign. Pharaoh is responsible. You are called. My point is this. An unbeliever and a believer would read Exodus 7 in very different ways. For for those who do not know Christ, the signs depicted in this chapter serve sort of like entertainment. Can you imagine what that looked like? I mean, the snake ate the other snakes, and, and that rod became a serpent. But that person cannot be moved to draw near to God in faith unless God awakens them and draws them himself. For you who are here today, the vast majority of you who have embraced Jesus Christ, you're, you're spiritually different from, from Pharaoh, meaning God has already made your heart spiritually tender. And so you and I read Exodus chapter 7 with an eye to value and to see and to know. First, an eye to value the, the work of God's word and spirit. Let's be clear, Pharaoh serves like an anti-type of how to value God's word and his spirit. For instance, Pharaoh says in verse 9, prove yourselves by working a miracle. And then God clearly proves himself, but it's not enough. So verse 11, Pharaoh summons wise men and sorcerers and magicians in order to nullify the message. I wonder if there's any other power in the whole world that could have the same kind of effect that I just saw in front of my eyes. Pharaoh doesn't value God's word or his spirit at all. But that's kind of a kind of posture that must not be characterized among the lives of believers. You don't ask God to prove himself to you. He already has. Yet it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to demand like Pharaoh that God would do still just one more thing. You know, God, I have a test this morning I haven't studied for. sure would appreciate it if you would do a sign and make this go well. I'm sure I've prayed similarly. Lord, I want you to break me free of this one sin, even though I continue to feed it and hide it and flirt with it. Then I'll know your power. Friends, God calls you to value the work of God's word and his spirit. And he says, why don't you look at what I've already done in the realm of transforming grace? What I've already done in the realm of the cross and the empty tomb. Why would you need something more than the sacraments and the word and the spirit to remind you of my signs? God calls you to value it. Do you? Every time a person stands up in front of this church and joins the church, 
it is evidence of God's power at work in them. Do you value it? In the course of the life of our church, we've seen many people brought to saving faith through Jesus Christ. Do you value the sign of God's work? You and I read Exodus 7 with an eye to value the work of God's Spirit, but secondly, to see the signs for what they are. They're an offer of grace. Pharaoh completely missed it. The sign of the staff is is this one last sign before the coming judgment. It's a piece of dead wood that turns into a snake. And the message is that grace is offered to those who would bow their knee and grab hold of my salvation. I wonder if you see God's signs for what they are. God's signs are still an offer of grace. When God used another piece of dead wood, that Roman cross. And he hung himself on it to pay for your sins. It's one last offer of grace before the coming judgment. When God raised his son from the dead and he left this sign of the empty tomb, it was one last sign. It's an offer of grace before the coming judgment. This morning, you've had the privilege to see one sign already in the form of baptism. In a moment, you're going to witness another sign called the Lord's Supper. I wonder if you see those signs for what they are. An offer of grace. One sign depicts the, the water, and it's only Jesus that can wash away your sin. That's what that sign says. Another sign depicts blood in the form of wine. And the sign tells us only the blood of Christ can pay for your sins. Do you see the signs for what they are? Do you value those signs as an offer of grace, as a summons to come to Christ? You and I read Exodus 7 to value the work of God's word and spirit, to see the signs for what they are, an offer of grace, and then finally to know the Christ. One of the themes of Exodus flows from Pharaoh's question in 5.2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? God answers that question. Verse 5. God says, I'm doing these things in the presence of the Egyptians that they may know that I am Yahweh. Now, how does God make himself known to the Egyptians? Through Moses. Through that mediator, I'm not sure if you caught it in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Ultimately, and finally, God made himself known not by a mediator who is like God, but by a mediator who is God. God makes himself known through Jesus Christ. And as you and I embrace these signs of God in our own lives, his word, his spirit, his sacraments, that's actually how God makes himself known again to the world. Not by and through you, but by and through Christ in you. Embrace God's signs that your heart may be tender to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the visible images that are represented in the sacraments that we have seen. We pray now, Father, 
that as we quiet our hearts and sing to prepare to take the Lord's Supper, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see the sacrifice of Christ and his grace. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.